Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. We're your hosts, Cody Sims and Hannah Davis. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. Today, we have Clay Dumas, partner at Lower Carbon Capital. Lower Carbon Capital has recently made some incredibly bold statements about backing entrepreneurs working on huge ideas to help us solve climate change. For those of you unfamiliar, Lower Carbon Capital is a fund that the capital is provided by Chris Saka of Lowercase Capital fame, in addition to his wife, Crystal. So I'm really excited to hear Clay's thoughts on things ranging from hydrogen to carbon capture to even completely crazy things like changing the makeup of the Earth's atmosphere through geoengineering. Clay, let's get started. I can't wait to hear your thoughts on all this. Share a little bit about yourself, your journey, and your focus at uh, Lower Carbon Capital. Sure. Thank you so much for having me. I spent the decade before I joined Lowercase and Lower Carbon in one way, shape, or form working for Barack Obama. And policy was a big piece of that. But if you have any experience working on campaigns, it's in a lot of ways like a startup. And the big difference is that you're aiming for 100% burn. When I was coming out of the Obama administration in January of 2017, it was an existential moment. The election of Donald Trump was weighing on me. And there was this big question of, is everything that we built and had worked on over the previous decade going to get ripped away. And so I knew at that point that I wanted to work in technology and I wanted to keep working on a lot of the issues that had driven me to drive across the country in the summer of 2008 to rural Ohio to help elect Barack Obama in the first place. And that's around the time that I met Chris and Crystal Saka, who were, to be clear, at a very different life stage. They just spent a decade building Lowercase Capital, which uh, was the most successful early stage venture fund of all time. But they were at a similar inflection point in thinking through some of these big questions about where to devote their energy and their resources in the years to come. Democracy, criminal justice reform, economic opportunity were all big areas for them, but climate was at the top of the list. And that aligned more or less exactly with my own priorities and frankly, the priorities that that had been motivating me for the decade leading up to this moment. And so that's what gave rise to lower carbon capital. In the beginning, it wasn't obvious to us that we were going to be investing in early stage technology. Chris had just retired very publicly from venture capital. And so in some ways, we were actually looking in the total opposite direction. We were spending a lot of time with academics and researchers trying to get a lay of the land for the nonprofit landscape, speaking to a lot of the folks that had invested in and supported the kind of clean tech 1.0 days. And I would say we came into it with a bias that in retrospect was totally incorrect. We thought, and we're still influenced by the idea that clean tech cost a billion dollars to get out the gate, that you weren't going to be able to scale anything without government support. And that there just wouldn't be follow-on investors for people like us who are investing at the earliest stages. But then we started meeting founders that were working in this space. Chris can't go into a room without getting pitched. And as we were meeting companies that were raising the same types of seed rounds as SaaS companies and building products that were cheaper, faster, and better than what they were replacing, and that were chasing trillion-dollar markets, it didn't take us very long to realize that actually... Investing in some of these early stage technologies might be the fastest way to achieve what it was that we had set out to do, which is to bring down concentrations of atmospheric CO2. And over the course of the next three years, as what began as an opportunistic investing deal by deal and turned into a full-fledged venture fund, we also refined our thesis. And to invest in really three categories in parallel, technology to reduce CO2 emissions from known and really hard to decarbonize sources technology to bring down CO2 that's already in the atmosphere, 
And then the third category, which we view more from a research and academic standpoint, we don't have any for-profit investments in today, but it's very much part of the overall strategy, is how do we buy more time for the people and ecosystems that are on the front lines of the climate disaster, including by looking at ways to actively cool the planet? Super. And what a noble thesis it is and a critical one toward where we're all going. Obviously, lower carbon, to some extent, is a play on lower case, but it also feels like one of the first funds in this new wave of what I would call truly climate tech that is a bit different than clean tech and funds that are really focused purely on energy and electrification. Your core thesis is around reducing carbon or or mitigating carbon from the atmosphere. In every conversation I've had with you, I've really felt that coming from you. Obviously, you're going to look at things in whether it's smart grid or distributed energy or whatever it is as marketplaces. But it also seems like you're not afraid to also look really far ahead on where the next generation of technologies are coming from that are actually going to help remove carbon or help us reduce our footprint. For our conversation today is, what are some of the technology developments, not marketplaces, not how electrons are going to necessarily shift around, but what are some of the technology developments you're most paying attention to right now? Let me just start by saying that that focus on bringing down carbon to the atmosphere, that really speaks to the process that we went through. We didn't start off by looking at which markets were going to change, what the opportunities were going to be in demand response, or how much cheaper solar or wind was going to get over the next decade. It really started from a question of what do we need to do to keep this planet livable? And on a fundamental level, as long as CO2 in the atmosphere keeps going up, it's going to get hotter. There's no path forward for life as we know it, unless we figure out how to start bringing the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere down. That's where we start with everything. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a lot of ways, when your goal is to bring down CO2 in the atmosphere, that means there's a lot that you can look at. We're not just looking at electricity generation. We're not just looking at clean building materials, but it covers almost every sector in the economy. When you think about Mm -hmm. going from 50 gigatons of greenhouse gas emissions every year to zero over the course of over the next decade, but over the course of the next several decades, you're talking about a total transformation in the global economy. Let me answer your actual question, which is around like what technology trends are we paying attention to and excited about? And in some ways, it's a tricky question because mm-hmm. we're seeing an overwhelming amount of just mind-bogglingly ambitious tech across so many sectors right now that it feels like as much as we'd like to focus on two or three, we have no choice but to try to pay attention to all of it. And we're just drinking it all in from a fire hose. If I look back at our investments over the course of the past year, I think one very close to the top of the list is synthetic biology. Transformation that's being ushered in by advances in CRISPR and Case 9 technology. I don't know if it's like fully dawned on the rest of society yet, but if you're early stage investing in pretty much any category at this point, whether it's healthcare or looking at chemicals, food, materials, and even in some cases enterprise software, you can see bio start to eat the world. And that has implications across, like I said, so many categories But especially the ones that we're looking at in climate, whether it's fertilizer production or food and beverage or chemicals, the the impacts are going to be widely felt. I would add to that, though, is it's not just the advances in a fundamental technology like SynBio or on one hand and automation on the other. These technologies are actually starting to be combined and compounded. In December, as a team, we sat down to look back at 2020 and think about the year ahead, talk through some of the areas where we're seeing a lot of innovation right now. Symbio, close to the top of the list. Hydrogen, we're seeing a ton in hydrogen, Mm -hmm. both in production and utilization. We started to see a very steady rise in the number of new startups working on carbon removal. But what was also cool is we're starting to see like people thinking about synthetic biology for carbon removal. 
Yeah. How do you do carbon negative hydrogen production? What are some new chemistries for energy storage that have a byproduct, which is generating this useful chemical? And alongside that, and maybe helping to drive a lot of those is we're starting to see the logical implications, what happens when you have very cheap and in some cases free renewable electricity. Mm. What happens when there's such an abundance of wind and solar that companies can literally get paid to take it off for a few hours a day? What do you yeah, do in California, this? we're dealing with curtailment regularly in, in certain times of the year where we're actually shooting yeah. electricity into the ground. Exactly. And so what implications does that have for hydrogen production? How does that change how you might think about producing cement or steel? You have companies that are also starting to think about what is the highest and best use, or at least the most valuable use of cheap electricity. Companies out in West Texas that are got a bunch of wind energy that are mining Bitcoin. And so I think as some of those new technologies begin to scale, they're producing brand new opportunities that we weren't thinking about five or 10 years ago. And it's really exciting. And it strikes me too that a lot of the fundamental technologies that the internet has helped build and a lot of the the big mega internet companies that have grown up over the last two decades, whether that's AI, machine learning, cloud computing, all of that is fueling the ability to create these new innovations in things like synthetic bio and whatnot, because you can actually do computations and figure out whether it's genomic structures or whatnot, much faster than you could have done a decade ago. The sort of advancement of the software industry is making a lot of this sort of new innovation possible. Absolutely. In fact, that brings up one of the kind of seminal points that I think dawned on us early on. As I described, in the very beginning, the goal here was not to build a venture fund. The investing was more opportunistic as we were just trying to understand the science and developing relationships in academia. I was coming at this new. I didn't come from venture and I didn't even really start this job with the goal of being a venture investor. It was Chris that started to see a pattern that was familiar to him from the early days of YC. The things that changed around software development and compute power and even the way that contracts were structured, they made it much easier and cheaper to start a company beginning in like 2006, 2007, 2008 than it had ever been before. And it enabled people to start companies from their garages and their dorm rooms and start writing a line of code without ever having to raise hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. And as we were beginning to get deeper and deeper into climate tech, we were seeing a lot of those same trends reveal themselves here, where whether it's, again, cheap renewables or new platforms for synthetic biology or any number of other developments that are helping to drive down the cost of carbon capture, new materials, of production, of new enzymes, These were just fundamentally driving down the cost of starting a new hard tech company so that with just a couple million dollars in a seed round, you could make a lot of progress, get to a point where you had a product that consumers were excited to buy. And in a lot of cases, not only was it going to be cheaper, better, safer, but it was also going to involve a lot less carbon in its production. And as we started to notice those developments, it became really clear that this was a massive opportunity just unfolding in front of us. With that backdrop, let's dive into a few of these technologies that are starting to really affect the mindshare amongst entrepreneurs who are diving into the space. The one that currently today has a lot of people abuzz, obviously, is carbon capture. And it seems like in the policy world, carbon capture sometimes is viewed as a controversial technology because some of the reason for that is people can say it continues to incentivize production of CO2 because now you can just store and utilize it, especially local point carbon capture, where you're capturing it at the source of producing some kind of carbon emission. In our previous episode, we talked to Kamal Kapadia of Teradatu, and she made the real point that 
look, at this day and age, we're at the point where it's all hands on deck and we have to reduce CO2 so fast that we can't just ignore the fact that there are technologies that can pull it out of the air. And how do we ramp that up? I think it also feeds into some of the topics we'll get into here later in the podcast around hydrogen and whatnot, where Mm -hmm. you can actually use carbon capture to generate potential future storage mechanisms for renewables. Just curious what you're seeing in the carbon capture world right now, where you think the market exists today and how you see that evolving over time, both from where the technology is that's actually performing carbon capture, whether that's direct air capture or whatnot, as well as what the carbon to value sort of world starts to look like. So before we dive into where the technology is, I just want to unpack a little bit what you said in the beginning about why are we doing carbon removal in the first place? Does it have value? Does it create a moral hazard that allows certain industries to continue to operate the way they have for the last 100 years, for the next 100? And let's just be really clear about something, which is that already in the atmosphere, there's about a trillion tons of CO2 that human beings have added and that's starting to tinker with the very fundamental climate systems that keep this planet livable and hospitable for all of us. And so there's a trillion tons already up there. Every year, globally, we emit around 40 billion additional tons of CO2. Half of that gets absorbed by the soils and the oceans. But on net, we're adding another 20 gigatons of CO2 or 20 billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. So by the time that we can get to zero in terms of new emissions, whether that's in 10 years or 30, we're going to have somewhere between one and two trillion tons of extra CO2 in the atmosphere that we need to deal with. Or else the unavoidable conclusion is that big tracts of the planet will be unlivably hot for the people that are living there today. So to the extent that there was a reason to worry about moral hazard, I think that reason expired in 1980. And now it's just arithmetic. We need to be pulling CO2 out of the sky and out of the oceans for that matter. We're going to hit on the topic of geoengineering in a minute. And I've heard some people say, look, we've already been geoengineering our planet for 150 years. Yeah, that's how we got to this place. (laughs) Exactly. We didn't always do it intentionally, but (laughs) now we're doing it cognizantly. I don't know where you want to draw the moral line, but on some level, we have to grapple the fact that the entire history of humanity in some ways is about geoengineering. But specifically on this point of carbon removal. Thankfully, the controversy seems to more or less have subsided. There was actually a really interesting turning point. When I came out of the Obama administration and started working with Chris and Crystal, at that point, carbon removal still had some of the stigma that you're talking about. It wasn't a widely accepted view in the kind of climate science and clean tech communities that this was going to be a necessary and unavoidable part of keeping the climate system safe. The big turning point, as far as I experienced, it was actually the 2018 IPCC report. When it came out that fall, and it said there's basically no path to one and a half degrees Celsius temperature rise, there's almost no path to two degrees Celsius temperature rise without removing a lot of CO2. And they said it could be as little as 200 gigatons, which is 200 billion tons, and up to a trillion tons of CO2. I think at that point, it became something that no one could avoid any longer. And it was a moment, pretty rapid reckoning within the community, I felt like to me at least, and consolidation around the idea that carbon removal had to be a part of the conversation. So that raises the question you were getting at, which is, how are we going to pull CO2 out of the sky and out of the ocean? What are the paths that we're excited about? And in general, if I could leave the listeners with one takeaway, it's that from what we're seeing right now is early stage pre-seed to Series A climate investors, there are a lot of different teams in the US and all around the world who are working on ways to remove CO2 cheaper and faster than 
I think anyone contemplated five years ago. I didn't expect the space to evolve as quickly as it has. And that leaves me very excited about the potential for carbon removal as an industry, not just because, like I said, we have to figure out how to remove somewhere between one to two trillion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere over the next century or over the next 80 years, hopefully sooner. But also just from an investment and commercial concern, this is an industry that to achieve that has to grow from a few million dollars a year today to something surpassing a trillion dollars a year by 2050. And so to see the level of, of innovation that's unfolding right now, I think really in some ways for the first time gives me hope that those massive numbers that we talk about, that we read about, are actually achievable. So what are the markets for CO2 removal today? That's a good question. That's often a question that especially new investors that are coming to this space and starting to take a look are scratching their heads saying, who's buying this stuff? There's a few different answers to that. The first is there's just a utilization market for CO2 today, whether it's in food and beverage and distilleries or pharma. And we see we hear a lot about this now with all the dry ice that's needed to carry the COVID vaccines. There is an existing market. It's not huge. It's not going to create any unicorns. But it's certainly big enough for companies that are figuring out how to remove CO2 to begin to scale their operations. And in some cases, it's also paying a really hefty price. In certain sectors, you might get $100 a ton. But depending on the application and the purity of the CO2 stream, you have buyers that are paying in some cases up to $800 or $1,000 a ton for CO2 that they're going to use in products today. That leaves room for a lot of margin, even for some of the fairly nascent technologies that are being developed today to capture CO2 from the atmosphere. That's really exciting. And in the same way, by the way, we're now talking about what happens in a world where solar and wind is super cheap and you have this super abundance of renewable electricity? What does that unlock? I think hopefully five, 10 years from now, we're asking the same questions about CO2. What's unlocked from a world in which we have a lot of pure CO2 streams? And by that point, also, the, some of the enabling chemistries to recycle those into new products. Wouldn't that be amazing if someday we view our atmosphere as actually a banked repository of CO2 because we know how to use it well enough? We will. We're starting to see these utilization markets begin to reveal themselves today. So that's the second market is utilization and still very nascent. The good news is you also have a lot of buyers on the other end that are starting to think whether it's companies like Nike and Apple or some of the really large OEMs who are thinking about how do we make these components with carbon negative materials? How do we do this to both reduce the operational emissions in our own supply chain because we've made these commitments to reduce our emissions and we don't really know how to do that today. So like also them recognizing there's a future world where with a lot of captured CO2 and with the refinement of these processes, we might also just be able to make and manufacture things more cheaply with captured CO2 today than we can from the various plastic inputs that we're using today. And so a lot of that is kind of investment in their future. I don't want to lie and say that market is hundreds of billions of dollars today, but I think it certainly has the potential to reach that in short order if some of these innovations are able to scale. The third category is negative emissions, right? People that are going to buy the CO2, not with any intention ever using it, but actually to stick it into the ground because they attach a value... To, to keeping the planet safe in the future. And today, almost all of that CO2, that the carbon removal for negative emissions, that's being bought by voluntary buyers. Companies like Microsoft and Stripe and Amazon and Shopify who are converting their own emissions and climate pledges away from just standard offsets 
to standard offsets plus carbon removal, or in some cases, like Stripe's just carbon removal. And I think we're going to see a lot of growth from what is today. Microsoft just announced their purchases, I think, yesterday. And Stripe announced a million dollars they purchased last year. Shopify is continually looking at new opportunities to buy carbon removal. And so I think we're going to start to see what's a small segment today, a few million dollars a year, grow very quickly in the decade to come. The negative emissions also has a component, which is policy change. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully we see some incentives that encourage further, further purchasing clear, of those. There already are some pretty strong incentives. Like the low carbon fuel standard in California, depending on whether your methodology has been approved, that's $200 per ton of CO2 that you put underground. Mm-hmm. 45Q, which just got extended, is another, depending on exactly how you're using it, between $35 and $50 per ton of CO2. Hmm. And every indication that we're getting from the new administration coming in is that those kinds of policies are going to be doubled down on, expanded, definitely made permanent. I think there's a lot of good news coming from the Biden administration in terms of the, the types of people that they're selecting to fill, not just the senior roles, right? But if you go down and look at the staff level positions and how they're being hmm. filled out, it gives me so much solace. That's a big deal. And so I think that over the next few years, as we begin to figure out how to pull those policy and government levers together with all the innovation that we're seeing from startups, I think four years from now, we're going to look back and the types of technologies, the strategies for moving CO2 from the atmosphere are going to be things that we can hardly imagine today. Well, and we're focused on deep technology today, but that clearly also starts to open up opportunities for entrepreneurs who are more marketplace entrepreneurs and and people building ancillary businesses around this space as well as the technology continues to mature and as the policy continues to mature, I would bet. That's absolutely Um, right. And so I think the more the space grows, the more opportunities are going to be, like you said, for all these services to be built around it. Great. Let's shift to another topic, which is another topic that a lot of entrepreneurs are spending time on. It's talked about as being a potential solution to energy storage, which is that of hydrogen. And if you're new to the climate space or trying to get your head around it, it's hard to understand how is an element a business model or what does that mean? What, how is hydrogen a new innovation? So maybe break down the hydrogen space a little bit. You hear about different colors of hydrogen, brown, gray, blue, green hydrogen. Talk about the importance of hydrogen in the energy value chain and where you're seeing innovation. I'm guessing you're spending most of your time looking at the green hydrogen side of things, but Maybe just helped orient people on what all of that means. Sure. So let's take a quick step back before we even get into the differences between green, blue, white, gray, brown hydrogen. Think of hydrogen as electricity in disguise. It's only as cheap or as clean as the inputs that produce it. So if you make your hydrogen from steam methane reformation using natural gas or coal, and you get what they call gray hydrogen, it's going to be pretty dirty. Mm -hmm. That's how most hydrogen in the world is made today. If you make your hydrogen by feeding water into an electrolyzer that runs on solar or wind power and gives you H2 and O2, you've got green hydrogen, it's carbon-free, and that's ultimately where we see the world headed. Mm -hmm. There's all kinds of other colors in between. I don't want to get lost in exactly all the different shades of hydrogen. In general, that's how I would think of the hydrogen question. And today, there's already a large and industrial-scale market for hydrogen production and hydrogen consumption. A lot of the discussion, a lot of the froth around hydrogen today is predicated on the idea that it's going to grow many times between now and the end of the decade because there's a lot of potential applications in specifically in industry and in transportation that will enable total electrification that's not possible in any other way. 
Yeah, it's primarily where lithium-ion batteries just either can't scale or can't scale fast enough to solve certain needs. Is that's a primary use case that it feels like a lot of people are leaning into? Is that correct? That's right. And I think that the particular price points are going to vary from one sector to the next. And so I think once you start digging into the very kind of concrete questions of once you can produce the hydrogen cheaply enough, how are you going to move it around? Hydrogen is tough to move around. You can't just stick in, a, in a, the same pipelines that we use for oil and gas. It takes up a lot more space. It seeps out of the tiniest little porous materials. And so the specific applications are going to really shape a lot of the constraints around cost and form factor. And so I think you have to look at it sector by sector. One particular sector and application that we've been thinking a lot about over the last few months is in aviation and heavy transport like ocean freighters. Different people have different theories about which they think is going to be the killer app for hydrogen. And I think that those are two really strong contenders. In terms of startup activity in the space, are you seeing it mostly around different ways to utilize hydrogen or as opposed to different ways to produce hydrogen? Like, where are you seeing early stage innovation breaking through right now? We're seeing it in everything from production to logistics to utilization. And it's happening all over the place. Whether it's new electrolyzer technologies, people that are refining PEM electrolyzers or who are developing totally new membranes and developing anion exchange electrolyzers or anion exchange membranes to make AEM electrolyzers or people that are working on more efficient compression of hydrogen to figure out how you move it around, whether it's liquid or gas, to developing new powertrains for trucks and planes. And so as a result, when we're trying to make sense of all this new innovation, one clear conclusion that I think we've arrived at over the course of last year is that a lot of people are going to be surprised by how fast the price of hydrogen production comes down. Hmm. Whether or not the applications are going to be there in time to start really decarbonizing some of these industries is another question. I'm optimistic, I'm hopeful, but I think we're seeing a lot of really interesting developments on the production of hydrogen, and that's ultimately going to be the very first thing that needs to be unlocked. Great. I have one more topic, but we talked about it for a minute, which is geoengineering or climate intervention. To me, I view this as, boy, what if we just can't do any of this fast enough? What are the extreme use cases we may have to take on? The big question I have in this, you can talk a little bit about some of the ideas that are being bandied about, whether it's aerosols in the air or changing how ocean chemistry is made up. The big questions I have is, are these things that startups are likely to tackle or are these nation state level like defense department initiatives? Just curious to hear your broad thoughts on this for any entrepreneur who's thinking about what if things get really dire? What are the opportunities going to look like? I should state from the outset, we are doing everything that we can to help get emissions down to zero and start removing CO2 from the atmosphere. But Even some of the most optimistic models about how quickly we do that, when we start talking about two degrees Celsius rise, those bake in a lot of suffering for people and ecosystems all around the world. Not just, oh, it's uncomfortably hot a lot of the year, but like we can't go outside hot for a lot of the year. And as that reality begins to dawn on people, it's already dawning on people. I think people... In those regions, and hopefully elsewhere, this is a matter of fundamental justice, we're going to start asking what other options we have. And which, by the way, as it gets that hot, then they're buying window air air conditioners conditioners that are creating more emissions that are exacerbating the problem. That's exactly right. Our approach at Lower Carbon on the investment side is on how to reduce emissions and remove CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. But the third leg of the stool is 
how do we buy time for the people in the ecosystems that are on the front lines of a climate disaster? Our fervent hope is that we never have to deploy any of those solutions, that to the extent that they're developed, they don't have profit models associated with them. And so for that reason, I think a lot of it has to happen at the nation state level and in the context of academic and research organizations that operate with total transparency, with clear governance, and a lot of the same questions that we had to deal with as a world when we were confronting things like ozone degradation in the atmosphere, and we created the Montreal Protocol to deal with that. And so there are models that we can use to begin to address questions of adjusting the the chemistry of the Earth's stratosphere to cool it down. And hopefully we'll turn to those and more of the world's attention will shift to think about some of these really big issues that for a long time have frankly been taboo to talk about. And we talked a little bit about how there was stigma associated with carbon removal. And over the last few years, it's mostly dissipated. But when you talk about actively cooling the Earth, that's something that gets people's blood boiling. And for good reason. It is a scary concept. And there are a lot of side effects that we don't fully understand, that a lot more modeling needs that need to take place for us to better wrap our heads around it. At the same time, we're never going to have all the answers from computer models, and we need to begin some small-scale experimentation. That's where a lot of our attention is now focused in figuring out how we broaden the set of the people and institutions that are working to lead a lot of that experimentation. From an entrepreneur's standpoint, I would say focus on decarbonization, focus on carbon removal, and leave up some of these questions about how to actively cool the planet to governments and researchers. That's not to say there will never be commercial applications. At some point, we need specialized planes that can fly up at 60 and 65,000 feet in the atmosphere and the stratosphere at that point to spread out the chalk or whatever other type of tiny particle we're going to be using to reflect sunlight. We're going to need teams that are working on potentially autonomous sea craft that can spit up a bunch of salt particles and make marine clouds brighter so they're reflecting more sunlight over the Great Barrier Reef or over the Gulf of Mexico so that the hurricanes aren't quite as intense. And there are any other number of paths that haven't been identified today that that may require some innovations. And some of that, whether it's on the materials side or on the transportation side, may require some, some innovators from the private sector to be thinking about those problems. But I think it's really important from the standpoint of ethics and governance, that those decisions ultimately not be made with a profit motive in mind, because that's when you start getting into some very worrisome scenarios. Really just powerful to hear your perspective on that, Clay. And I'm really inspired by the North Star that you all bring to the problem that we're all trying to solve. Thanks for your time today. The last question I have for you, what's one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs embarking on a climate-focused endeavor? Don't wait. I think that our ability to solve these problems is going to be a function of how much talent we can get working on them in the next decade, alongside all the different technologies that have to get developed and the business models that will need to get refined. If we can't get our smartest minds working on this problem in one way, shape, or form over the course of the next 10 to 15 years, we're not going to succeed. The problem is too big. It's too complex. There's too many different pieces to solve that if we don't have a critical mass of people working on these problems, we're not going to get there. I think the short answer is don't wait. And while you're at it, recruit some friends to come with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for really going deep with us on all sorts of topics on where this space is headed and look forward to hearing about what you decide to invest in next and help us all move toward a decarbonized planet. 
Thanks so much for listening today. We really hope you enjoyed the discussions. Applications are open until May 16th for our Techstar Sustainability Accelerator in partnership with the Nature Conservancy. Check out the episode notes for links and more information. See you in the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast.